Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I wanted just to remind people to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show. It's something that gets repeated here because it is the way we sustain the show. We don't have a company that pays for it. I pay for it. And so it's a way to make sure that it can keep going. So please partner with me, with us here on the podcast team and go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. And if you join the $50 or more tier per month, then you get to have monthly conversations with me. And it would be great to be able to set that up. You get to ask questions pertaining to these issues, but personalized to you. And we can do that once a month on the phone or on Zoom or Skype. If you'd like to have that kind of conversation tailor-made to you, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and pay $50 or more per month. And then we'll be sure to set that up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. And for today, we have Zachary Heinzerling. I first talked to Zachary when he was working on the documentary about the Sarah Lawrence cult. Zachary is an Academy Award-nominated and Emmy Award-winning director based in New York City. He began his career at HBO, working on four consecutive Emmy Award-winning documentaries and the Emmy Award-winning series 24-7 as a field producer and cinematographer. In 2012, he left HBO to complete his feature debut, the multi-award-winning film, Cutie and the Boxer, which he both directed and shot. Cutie and the Boxer was nominated for the 2014 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The film also won a 2015 Emmy Award for Best Feature Documentary. In 2015, he was enlisted by Beyonce Knowles Carter to direct the five-part web series Self-Titled for her album Beyonce. In 2019, he directed an episode of Dirty Money for Netflix. In 2021, he directed the critically acclaimed six-part series McCartney 321, his latest docuseries entitled Stolen Youth, Inside the Cult of Sarah Lawrence about Larry Ray and his victims, premiered February 9th on Hulu. If you haven't seen it, please, please, please do so. I'm very happy to have you hear from him today. Here's Zach now. It is. So good to have Zach with me today. Zach, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and then we're going to get started. Thanks for having me. I'm Zach Heinzerling. I directed Stolen Youth, which is about a group of students from Sarah Lawrence who fall under the spell of a roommate's father, Larry Ray. And I'm excited to answer questions and talk about the show and also talk about, you know, the conversations we had while I was making the show. So thank you, you know, thank you, Rachel, for being a part of the show and and for your advice and conversations throughout because they were immeasurably helpful and 
navigating the subject matter. I'm so glad that you asked for help. There are a lot of people who don't, and they go ahead with a lot of different shows and interviews. And you can tell that then the interview is not a comfortable one, and they're not able to have the subject feel safe to talk to them. So I know it's a, it's a win-win when someone is consulted who might be able to give you some sense of how to do it differently or more comfortably, you get more of what you want. The person gets more of a feeling of knowing that there is an intuitive, nuanced understanding about why this might be hard to talk about and open up about. You know, one of the things that I noticed, because yes, we did talk throughout here and there. But when I was watching it, I was so struck by a few things. First of all, that you did, I'm sure I could take credit for some of it, but it really is your personality that helps people feel good. Like this is going to be a useful tool. This is going to be a useful tool for them to get something off their chest, but also to teach the public that it's not just sensationalistic, that you know, you you spend your time uh, working on projects that I think really matter to you on many levels. So I was wondering for you, what was the driving force for you to want to do this? Because this was a lot to dive into. Yeah, I think it's a, a good question. You know, when Daniel first approached me, um, showed me a, a bit of his book, I really connected with Daniel and felt like I could have been him in this situation. You know, I, I went to a, a liberal arts college, had similar friends, you know, I had a lot of strange similarities to Daniel's upbringing, you know, kind of a middle-class family. Both of our mothers were diabetic, had older siblings who were more, you know, successful and driven academically. And we were both kind of a little bit lost in college. So a lot of what, you know, he told me really resonated with me. And I felt like I could certainly contribute to to telling his story through a documentary. You know, it became a different project altogether when I met Isabella and Felicia. But I think that the same components and connections of of this time, you know, in your life where you're in college and seeking identity and building connections with new people is really universal. And I was really upset at how the public was treating these individuals, basically victim blaming them and and not really taking into account what course of control is, what power dynamics were at play. And it just struck me, and it still strikes me even after the series, that there's just so much learning that our culture needs to do in this space to really understand what's going on so that these victims' stories can be understood and empathized with. And I think that's where the work of the film went into. And it's also, I think, where the work after the film you know, needs to continue. It's really about understanding, yes, course of control, but also just how we as humans take what people who naturally are in a a place of a position of power as truth 
and we believe what people in power tell us. And and that power dynamic is is rarely made explicit. And I think the fact that that existed and the power uh, eventually that Larry held, you know, to me, after understanding these individuals, the survivors' stories was very clear. But it's a lot of work to help others understand what happened. And so that's that was really the the goal and continues to be the goal of the project, I think. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So I didn't know that, you know, Daniel was this catalyst along with you having a real sensitivity and commonality with him. And and I think it is so powerful when you see these people's stories. I mean, you there's so much footage, which is fantastic. <laughs> Sometimes you wish for this sort of glorified self view that a lot of these cult leaders have where they think that everything they're doing is worthy of recording because it's going to be somehow used for them for their purpose or for an instruction manual for how to do this, never expecting it's going to be used against them. There's something kind of delicious in terms of the justice of it, that it was used to really show in a very primal way who this person was and how they didn't hold themselves to the same standards of conscience that other people would, who would have stopped themselves much sooner. But when you see how much people were suffering, when you see how much the people who who really cared about being good and showing that they were good and devoted people how much they had to tolerate or were willing to tolerate whatever kind of language you want to use. But I do think it is very interesting. You know, you you wonder how some of these people lived through it. And it feels like for some of them, they barely did. I'm sure it was hard to look through all of that and just to see that, you know, it's sometimes by luck or by someone jumping in or by just human preservation that they're still around and talking today. Absolutely. Larry could easily still be in that house with those women. You know, he published a website announcing basically his crimes online, uh, which led to the investigation and, and, you know, his conviction. But I think the other big lesson here is just these things, most of which is legal, goes on and on and on completely, you know, unseen by most of society. And I think I think what struck me the most in seeing some of these videos is when you have this kind of disease that is allowed to kind of metastasize and grow in an enclosed environment with no perspective and and no outside reach, it can get like beyond insane. The spiraling of it is something that, you know, you don't know how deep the well is, you know, until you're in it for those survivors and and for me as well, investigating. And it's really hard to reconcile it all. It's really hard to sort of understand. I mean, a lot of the times I'm like, well, of course I understand that Larry is a malignant, narcissistic, sociopath, psychopath who, you know, must've had something traumatic happen to him and yada, yada. But like, it's still hard to believe. And I think that it's it's hard for others to understand too when they see these videos, like what exactly is going on? It's outside of our realm of 
understanding. And I, and I think that that's obviously why when I spoke about how upset I was at the treatment of the victims in this situation, I think that's where it stems from is it's just, it's too hard to imagine that this could happen, that, that anyone could be like this. Right. I mean, I'm sure if you bumped into someone and happened to hurt them or then cause them to bump into something, you'd feel terrible. And that's just one occurrence and by accident. So to have somebody who can come in and who sees, as I see it, human beings as sport, that they don't have a sense of causing pain in a way that would bother us. In fact, it's a a symbol of power if you can cause pain and if you can cause people to have emotional pain or physical pain. But these people who are so good, they're so good at how to control people, but also how to set up a machine of different parts that are keeping themselves in control and keeping each other under control. So the scene that I want people to see that I won't give away too much because I really want people to still see it, but just this this idea that someone needed to hurt themselves to keep someone else in line, knowing that that was going to work because that person was going to feel bad about this other person hurting themselves. Everything was sort of carefully attuned to the personalities And so then, you know, these cult leaders can set something in motion, but then don't often have to do all the work. They can just create, right, the scenes of control, the the methods that they know through trial and error are going to work better for some people than others. They're going to up it also. And the threat of something greater is always going to be there too, hanging over like this dark cloud. And at the same time, causing people to feel that this is their one chance to be uh, something, whatever it is that they're trying to achieve in their life, and that they are supposed to show that they have integrity. They're supposed to stay with this and make a commitment to themselves and to each other. And so they're checking inward and, and using themselves as a kind of a guidepost for how to held on to this no matter how bad it gets so that they can get what they've been promised or they can prove themselves to be people of integrity. You know, this idea of people in position of power, not only do they have power over us, but we want to prove something about ourselves to them. And one of the things that I try to tell people is it is great to want to prove something about yourself to someone, but only if they deserve it not just because they are in a position of authority. I think about him being an expert in things similar to an extra extra on a like medicine commercial who puts on a white lab coat and looks like a doctor. <laughs> you know, they're not, but they look the part. So we listen and we believe them. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I met Larry and he presents us, and, and this was another comment I think that a lot of people had in this story is that you know it doesn't look like uh, a charismatic you know leader type you know he seems like this sort of schlubby man with a staten island accent and i think meeting him in person though you know i could really get a sense of not only like physical power but he can endlessly talk about any subject and i think part of you know the your biggest weakness with an individual like Larry is being nice, is being polite. 
um, because he takes that politeness and runs with it and doesn't allow you any outs. You know, so I think in a lot of these cases, it was like from the minute you meet this person, you're way out of a conversation, you're way out of an eventual scenario that is sexual, abusive, whatever. There's there, he eliminates your ability to get out. And I think that's also hard for people to understand because the door is unlocked, but the mind uh, is in that, you know, the mental prison is so much stronger than I think people can understand without having seen something like this or, or read about it or uh, experienced it themselves. Wow. And so, you know, for you, I'd love you to talk a little bit about this for you to meet him, you know, yeah, he's going to have that kind of like Keith Ranieri dude hanging out with you kind of look like "Mm," you wouldn't think anything of it. And I think that's why, you know, people lower their defenses and they think they're just hanging out with someone who they think is just kind of a relaxed person who might have some things to teach and who really cares about them because he has a very, from what I could see from afar, has a very intense look in his eye, which I'm sure that look can be piercing and it could also be intimidating. What was your impression of him? I mean, besides sort of the appearance, but his way of interacting with you, what was he trying to do when he was talking to you? What kind of impression was he hoping to give you about him? He was trying to impress me with his sort of global intel, CIA meets FBI historical knowledge. And, you know, I, of course, had already read the article at this point, so his tactics didn't work on me. But I think what did work is a kind of attention and a kind of presence that almost felt like it was enveloping me. You're just not often met with that kind of like initial investment in in you or what you have to say or any of it. I think just because in everyday life, and those are the things that we're actually like seeking in everyday conversations. So even though I knew so much about this person and knew he was bad, you know, I definitely was sucked in to some degree by what he had to say and listened you know, and, and listen to it. I, of course, was like also interested in potentially documenting, you know, his side of the story, but it became clear that he was in such a state of delusional malarkey that nothing he said was going to give me more insight on who this person really was. It was all lies, manipulation. It was the same story that he'd been telling everybody for years that I had heard over and over again. So I wasn't going to gain any insight into like what made him who he was or what his past was like or any of it from him. So it became, um, you know, it was interesting to meet him, but immediately was kind of not uh, necessarily a path for discovering a deeper truth about him or what happened. Right. You know, the the term delusional malarkey, I like it. Because yes, it is. And though it sounds so real at the time, but also if you are younger and if you're kind of, you're a hatchling in this world, you haven't really fully experienced it yet. 
and you have been raised to believe adults. I mean, now a newer generation of people is is being told to question authority, but still there is the need from early on from respecting your parents, listening to your parents, and then shifting to the other adults in your world that you're supposed to listen and you're supposed to be able to trust. I think there were a lot of things about him that felt trustworthy, but also that his daughter was a big believer in him. And I know that, you know, that you and I, you know, we had conversations about her and as well as everyone else, but that she wasn't shown in this to the degree that the other students were. And I don't know if you are at liberty to or comfortable talking about that decision and what's happening now with her. Yeah. I mean, I tried to get her in the documentary and, you know, she just declined over and over again to participate. I felt like because it was such a survivor-led narrative, I didn't want to spend too much time with the others explaining her experience for her. You know, I honestly, I see her as a victim as well. You know, having Larry as your father, you know, uh, of course she was present for for some of these what could be described as interrogation sessions. Uh, And of course she was, you know, around some of this behavior that was abnormal to say the least. She was mostly kept away from anything illegal and anything that would be obvious as physical or sexual abuse. And I think of course she also saw everything through her father's eyes and could not see what was actually going on. So as far as her, you know, involvement in the film, I kind of made the decision if if she's not going to participate, you know, I, I I told her story in such as that was the way in was they met at school and through her and she was around in the apartment a little bit, but pretty soon after, you know, her Larry kind of wanted her to be away from it all and kind of purposefully. She moved to North Carolina and um, she was still in touch with the other survivors, but wasn't really around for for much of the serious abuse. So, you know, that's kind of all, you know, as where she is now, you know, she's still living in North Carolina and I don't really know where she stands. You know, I think you probably know that that Isabella, you know, was sentenced to four and a half years in, in federal prison. And in her, you know, sentencing defense did apologize and recognize Larry as her abuser. And I know that she is on a path to sort of recovery. And and so that's great. And I do think when the filming was going on, I did not, I couldn't foresee that happening. And it just, I guess, is an example of I sort of have hope for anyone who's in this situation because it it's very possible that something clicks and everything sort of falls apart and you're able to kind of make that transition. And I think over and over and over with Santos, with Elisa, with Felicia, I thought there's no way that they're going to ever see their parents again. Like the way that they speak about their parents and the level of detail they go into these stories where their parents abused them and how their father was a a drug dealer 
and you know how he raped them as children and how awful their parents were with such clarity and specificity there would be no reason for them ever to interact with these people ever again of course i knew that larry had manipulated these memories to some extent but when i met them i didn't know what was real and what was larry and i didn't know if if they had been abused as kids or not and i certainly thought even if they hadn't been it would take something fairly massive you know for them to be able to speak with their parents who they've fundamentally decided are bad people and are the reason for all their problems and you know so much more about this but it was just it was honestly shocking to me when each of them kind of found their their way out of it and and really found themselves and really wanted to be together again i think there's hope for talia for sure and i hope that she you know her mother is still alive and her sister is still alive i mean i, I would hope that you know or that she's at least able to sort of distance herself from her dad and live a live her own life right you know you get so close i'm sure to these people to really caring about their stories finding out about their stories and also mm, watching them as they transition and seeing the light kind of come back on it's Something that I see in my counseling work, it's something that people who have been interviewing people for a stretch of time, while they're kind of coming to, can sometimes see it like the, wait a minute, Uh, I was in a fog, I thought that was true, now I'm really not sure. It usually starts with, I'm not exactly sure, then, oh, I can see how that was totally implanted. And so you were kind of with these people, I think, long enough to be able to see in some of them just along their trajectory, just almost, I don't know if you had this experience, but I've had this, I get goosebumps thinking about it, where I feel like after I've been talking to someone who's just newly out of something, because memory is so malleable and it gets so fixed and we can visualize things that happen. It's not like just telling a story, we can visualize it and it never happened. That suddenly when people are in that, and then it starts to fall away. Then they come into my office or I see them on Zoom and I feel like I'm meeting them for the first time. Like they just landed back on earth and you can kind of see that they're alive again. Uh, They probably also feel it inside. You can feel kind of protective of them and close to them. And so I wonder how, how that was for you, watching the slow transition of things sort of falling away. Well, Felicia was definitely the example of that that I had most, the sort of longest relationship with and saw the kind of full arc of her transitioning from Larry to without Larry and with her family. I think, you know, it was like, um, yeah, there, there were just so many like aha moments for her when she would just be reading you know something that she had written from her journal you know something that she had written you know larry used to make them make these timelines of events and it was all about chronicling you know the story and she would reread a piece of this timeline or a date and be like uh you know actually you know i can't actually visualize that memory right now all I can do is hear Larry telling me what to write. 
and I can't embody the memory in the way that I can even more recent memories that I know are more real. And then like seeing somebody discover what it means to like actually remember something as opposed to it just sort of being a part of your identity that, you know, this thing happened and you just tell people that, you know, like my mother was a teacher and yada, yada, yada. But there's one scene in the, in the film where in real time, Felicia is recounting a childhood memory and then realizes that what she's saying was actually Larry who had changed this story to sort of fit his narrative of Felicia. And that is, you know, that there were several of those moments, but, you know, that one in particular, I just remember being just completely blown away. And in the moment feeling like, because up until that point, I don't even know if she had really given up on the idea that Larry was potentially good for her. You're still trying to hold on to some semblance that this person is good, even as you're transitioning out into a world in which some parts of that person are bad. And I think it's just more and more of those moments start to form and more connections with other people outside of that person. But, you know, it was really, it was really profound. It was probably the most profound thing I've witnessed in years of documentary filmmaking. You know, somebody as intelligent as Felicia, who is, you know, uh, she, of course, went to Harvard and Columbia and, and has a PhD to understand what's like happening to her in real time i have trouble with that even in like in my own therapy like i might sense that something i'm doing is problematic but to admit that to yourself is really really hard and so there were several of those moments where some resulted in her just uncontrollably crying because i think when she was faced with the reality the sort of mask of protection of this being okay because Larry says it's okay falls and you're just left with like utter sadness. And that was really hard. We actually didn't really include those moments in the film because they're just, you know, it's already so sad and, and tragic. You know, it's really about finding moments where the audience can learn something from this, you know? So there were, sort of highs and lows, you know, moments of sort of epiphanies that felt valuable and then moments of just epiphanies that led to this kind of realization of what had happened, which is really hard for somebody to face. Yeah. And I think what happens with people who also who are very bright is that they connect the dots themselves and they fill in the missing pieces of information because that's how their brain feels most comfortable. I mean, there's so many things that controllers can depend upon their followers or their victims doing to just keep it going. It's a really unfair thing to do to someone, but also it's just a cruel thing that our brain does that we sometimes fortify these falsehoods because we need to make sense of things. And then we do a lot of the work for the controllers. But it's also really hard, I'm thinking of Felicia and others, when you've accused people of things who you love, you need to stick to a consistent story for as long as you can. 
can, because why would you have accused them of this or believe this or gone to causing them potential pain by accusing them of this if you weren't sure? And so people need to feel sure, I think, for a very long time until they're ready, really ready to see that it was totally false. And then they can go back and apologize, you know, to whatever degree it was their fault. Because they were just, I mean, there was a puppet master, right? And they were just having their strings pulled. But still, they feel terrible that they made all these false accusations and accused people of poisoning them and all of these things that felt very real. And so until I think you really feel very sure, it's hard to go back on these moments because you just feel so bad knowing that you've done it and it was all for no reason and it was all false. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if they've had the experience of apologizing. You know, I think all of them are still kind of figuring out how to move on and and the parents or parents feel the need to apologize because they feel as if they've done something wrong too. So, but, you know, I, I definitely think in Isabella's case, she felt the need to apologize, you know, obviously because some of the stuff that she did was criminal. And, you know, I, I think that must have taken a lot to get there. You know, I, it reminds me of one of the things that you talked to me about or what I remember most like from our conversations that was most important in me speaking with survivors was this idea of talking about talking. It's like, if you're just having some, if, and it's a, it's a, it's a great interview tactic only in these kinds of scenarios. Typically when you're interviewing someone, you know, where did you grow up? Where did you go to college? Tell me about your childhood. And the answer is, I grew up here. My childhood was like this. It's like the first level. It's like the first level of your story. The only truth in this story was if you went to the second level, which was making them think about why they answered the way that they did. Because then they're forced to go into another place of their brain that they haven't really gone into because they're so used to reciting their story for Larry or Larry's story or whatever the story that makes Larry's story make sense. That if they have to think about why they hesitated when they answered this or why they're so definitively angry about this person, then it's a, a moment of real reflection on their on their part and not just a reciting of whatever that first level is and i think that's like an incredibly valuable tool i think for anyone you know it was especially valuable for me in in this process because typically as a journalist you're you're sort of taking what people say on face value and um and you're not necessarily trying to get them to think further about an answer or why they're answering in a certain way, or as you put it, you know, talking about talking, you know, why is it, why is this a hard subject matter to talk about? Or why are you feeling this way about this particular thing? So yeah, I was just, I just wanted to, it was mostly just to say that that was, one of the things I remember about our conversations. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, I remember our conversations where you were really wanting to know how to bring the conversation to a different place. 
So that there could be that moment of reflection where if you felt like you were getting something very practiced and rehearsed, very automatic, but you weren't sure if it was real. And to make matters more confusing in these situations, the person saying it isn't always sure that it's real, but they know that it's the thing that they're supposed to say or the thing that they were most recently trained to say or the thing they think is most right. I mean, they're going through their own kind of gymnastics inside while they're talking to you, but also needing to seem very cool and sure as they're saying it because they know that they have to report back that they said the thing that they were supposed to say just right. I mean, there's so many things. So much is happening that's invisible right in front of you, that's internal, that's between you. So thank you for that feedback. I just used that recently with someone who came to me that he was brought to me because he has trouble with the truth. He doesn't often tell the truth, which I think is a very interesting thing. There are a lot of reasons that people do that, but they're the ones who usually get punished. But it's usually a reaction to worry about being punished. And I remember having him tell me a story and I said, if there were no consequence for you telling me the truth, how would that story sound different? Why don't you take it from the top? And it was a totally different story, but it was still kind of midway. And I said, and if you knew that I'd be really feeling kind of proud of you, that you had the bravery to tell me the truth and that it meant that you trusted me enough to hear it. And that meant something good about our therapeutic relationship. How would the story sound? And then it would like it went all the way, (laughs) but it's talking about talking. How do you do it? How do you help someone feel comfortable? Because yeah, a lot of what people are saying is just such a combo platter of what they think they're supposed to say, that they're supposed to please a person, they're supposed to sound like they have it together, or they're reporting back to someone who's going to ask them what they said, or someone's listening who's going to report back, who knows what. So it's so complicated, but it seems like you really did give them the sense that it was safe and it was in their best interest to really take a moment to think, because that's always... It's always a good idea. What I'm wondering about too is just the fact that this happened under the nose of a university. And this is not just to blame th- that university. I mean, it's still, I'm still getting calls from people all over, even in fact, Sarah Lawrence, who are getting involved in things in multi-level marketing and a group that is very much out there in terms of its beliefs and with a shaman and whatever else. And shamans aren't necessarily bad, but most of them are just people who call themselves shamans and can charge people lots of money. There is a training for it. There is a kind of indigenous piece. But if it's, you know, some guy named Larry, (laughs) it's like, hey, guess what? I'm going to call myself that. So it's, there is still that things happening at Sarah Lawrence and at UCLA, uh, one after the other, after the other family is contacting me, talking about things happening there with their kids really being pulled off campus and into the vortex of a group or a person and universities aren't really doing very much about it. And so I'm wondering just from what you saw, how these things can stay under the radar as well as they do, unfortunately. I mean, sometimes it's just by chance, but sometimes not. There really isn't oversight. And so I wonder if that left an impression on you too. Yeah, it did. And people, of course, have blamed Sarah Lawrence. My take is I think it could have happened anywhere. Honestly, I think about my dorm. I went to the University of Texas. I think I had a key card to get in. Uh, I was on a floor with probably 40 other dorms. I think there was one RA. 
if my dad had wanted to stay over in my dorm, I think that would have been fine. And honestly, if my dad had been someone that was presenting as nice and courteous and got along with the RA, uh, you know, I don't think the RA would have immediately like reported it as a problem. You know, I think there's this perception that he was there for an entire year, two years, you know, he was there like over the course of a semester and he would stay the night on the couch, three, four nights, but on and off. He would sort of come and go. And I think he would kind of play it where if he felt like maybe someone thought it was strange, he would sort of duck out for a while or, you know, he knew the people to talk to and talk about himself and his relationships. And, you know, he was friendly with professors. He was friendly with people in administration. Obviously, there. I think he's a very specific individual and it's hard to think, yes, like this kind of thing, you know, could happen just because of how severe it got. It's hard to make a generalization, but I do think that we naturally trust people and all of this seemed like normal to enough people that red flags weren't being raised you know he was there ostensibly to like help his daughter and hang out with his daughter's friends and i don't know i mean i think that there needed to be obviously more oversight and there needed to be some kind of you know where the university is at fault is you know, one of the students sent this email to the administration that had all these kind of ins- insane allegations about what Larry did and didn't do. At that point, I think they should have stepped in and investigated what was going on and, uh, and, and talked to the other students and talked to the other parents, and they didn't. And I think that Larry's getting the foot in the door. I think that could happen anywhere. I think him sustaining this relationship as long as it went on without the university feeling a responsibility to follow up on what was clearly abnormal, that was dropping a ball. And and I do, you know, I do think that at other institutions that had, you know, administrators uh, that took this more seriously would have done something. So I I think there is culpability. Uh, I just think that what people usually say is, how could this dad have just been sleeping you know, in the dorm. And I actually don't think that that's as weird as people think, but certainly at like a college like Sarah Lawrence that's encouraging independence and, you know, they they didn't have a really strict guest policy because they, you know, this is their first time away from home and this is their time to, you know, it, it's almost, you know, it feels like a safe place. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you that it would not um, it would not stand out if someone were hanging out and people would seem like they're being nice people that they're letting someone stay who needs a place to stay. I know we're wrapping up, and I think what's true, just as a cautionary tale to universities or any any place that is in charge of students, if someone does alert you, like you're saying, there are universities that will say, you know what, I either we're not going to believe this at all, or it's just going to take too much effort to deal with it. The problem is 
that when someone with Larry's personality knows that they're getting away with something, it creates more of a monster. And then you have someone who is so boosted by that entitlement and also knowing that they're getting away with it, that then the university by its inaction creates a bigger problem. And so I just, I wanted to put that out there, that it's important to do something sooner than later, but to also be smart about it and to not just go in and create a scene where then Larry's going to come crashing down on these kids for calling them out. It has to be with some level of skill and checking in with experts. But I want to, I want to thank you for really jumping in and into this and needing to find this way of doing it to bring people out, to make them feel safe, to manage everyone's emotions and their stories and get to the truth. There's, I don't know how you juggle all of that while still you know, doing filmmaking with so much. It really, truly, truly is. And just dealing with all of their emotions and what they were sharing with you. So I I give you so much credit for what you put together. It really is exceptional. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely didn't know what I was getting into and, and ended up the experience was much more about managing relationships and um, emotions than actual filmmaking but i honestly think that's why i like documentaries is because it feels like there's a connection to people and uh almost privilege to be a part of someone's world that you never ever could have you know understood in this kind of profound way unless you did this kind of longitudinal project with them so I think um, it was an amazing learning experience for for me. And I hope that it sort of furthers the conversation and that these types of stories do, of course, help add to the canon of knowledge that we have on this subject matter and, and make people more aware. And I think it is. And so thank yeah, thanks for having me and thank thank you for doing the amazing work that you do. And and I look forward to more conversations about this. Really fascinating. It's all so much about human nature and what people do to other people, which is endlessly fascinating, disturbing, interesting, and fascinating. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you very much to Zachary Heinzerling. It was really good to speak with him. And we had actually been talking for quite some time before he and I got together to talk on the podcast. It was great to be able to work with him, to weave in what I had learned over the years, and to hear that played out in the docuseries some of the discussions that took place, some of the questions that were asked of the people who were in it were guided by the conversations that I had with Zachary. You know, it's an interesting thing. When people want to talk to others who have been through something like this, they want to be very sensitive about not re-traumatizing the person to find out about their experience, but they also don't want to talk to them like they are different from anyone else. 
or like somehow they should have known this was happening or they should have been able to prevent it or they should have seen it coming. There's so many times people in colleges and certain lines of work where it is assumed that you have a certain IQ and a certain emotional intelligence as well. They feel judged. They feel judged by people who question them. And I know Zachary was wanting to be very cautious about not at all wanting to come across with any of the people who were affected by Larry Ray as somehow thinking like somehow you should have known what was happening. No one would know in that situation what's happening. Unless you yourself are some sort of sociopathic mastermind, you're not going to notice it in another person, especially when it's this sort of slow burn. And with Larry Ray, there were so many things that made him trustworthy and believable at the beginning, namely that he was just a dad. He was a dad of a fellow student who they were friends with and who they liked. And so that lowers the defenses and it makes people not as suspicious of you. If you have kind of a calling card, if you can say, oh, I'm just so-and-so's dad. And if you also were very good at telling a story about all of your accolades and all the things that you've retrieved in the world, most people are not going to check that out and verify that it's true because they're going to assume that if you're saying it, it's probably true. So much of what happened, as we see in this docuseries, is that people were able to be slowly pulled into the quicksand of mind control and slowly learn to turn on each other and to police and patrol each other. Larry Ray is a genius. And in this situation, I say that as being very unfortunate. Some people use their intelligence for good, and some people use it for very bad intentions, very selfish intentions. One of the things that Zachary and I talked about was sort of talking about talking. How do you have people talk where you don't know if they're ready to talk, if you don't know if that's going to be traumatizing for them, you don't know if they feel safe yet talking to you? There are so many times that we are left in situations with people who have been through something, not knowing if we're going to be re-injuring them by brokering a conversation with them about it and giving them an opportunity to share. And one of the best things that you can do is you can narrate your worry and just say it out loud and say, I would love to talk to you about what you've been through. I need to know that you feel ready for that. When do you think you'll feel ready? And how will you know you're ready? And what can we do while we're talking so that you can ensure that it feels comfortable and safe all along the way? And if I'm asking you a question and it feels like too much, I'm going to give you permission to not answer it or not answer it yet. And if the conversation is going on for a long time and your heart is starting to race and memories are coming back and you need to take a break, I want you to have a sense of agency. I want you to be in charge of that and to say, I think that's it for right now. And if there are certain terms you want me to use and not use, there's some people who have come out of these situations who don't at all mind being called victims. And others really don't like the name at all. So before you label anyone, ask them, what can I call you based on your experience here? Your name, does it help you to be called a victim? Because then you know you were victimized and you understand then why you're feeling traumatized. 
Or does that make you feel like you're looking down on yourself and others might look down on you? Whatever it is, guide me to know how to talk to you about this and how to invite you to talk about it with me in a way that feels ultimately safe and respectful. And that a lot of people, when they're asked questions by interviewers, they do feel like they have to answer. And sometimes they feel under a time crunch. Like they know when something is going public or when the show is going to be coming out and they, they need to then answer those questions right away. It's okay if you say to someone interviewing you, I need a day. I need a few days. I need to regroup from this. I need to not answer this right away. And an interviewer, worth anything, I think, would say, absolutely. Because it's a way to get a better interview if the person you're interviewing is comfortable, but also it's a way for you as an interviewer to know down the road that you haven't caused any harm along the way. And that's very important for everyone. It's also very good if you are talking to people, and I think about this on the podcast, if you're talking to people who have been through something, you want to model for them how you're different from an abuser, how you're different from a cult leader, how you're different from someone who's going to push them too fast and too far and is going to make them feel shame for not answering the question or answering it fully when you wanted it. This is a meeting of the minds. This is a sharing of information. I want a person to feel invited, never pushed. Same thing with Zachary. He wanted these people to feel invited and not pushed. And so our conversations were very specific how can I ask this question? And is it okay to ask it this way? Or is this the right time to ask it? And I really valued being asked those questions so I could offer my information from years of doing this and some of my intuition. It's very nice to know there are people in media who really care. There's so many stories about cults that are just pure sensationalism. Those are the ones that I say no to. Those are the ones I'm not ever going to be involved in. And so when there are people out there who can say, yes, I am part of this media machine, but I have a heart and I have a conscience and I'm going to follow those. It's actually very heartening and reassuring. And I'm sure it was very reassuring for the people who had been through the cult at Sarah Lawrence to know they were in good hands. Check out the docuseries. Very well done. It's a really wonderful case study on megalomania and sociopathy and control and undue influence and how people break free. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you, too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination. <laughs>